We're ready for 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. We have talked a little bit about some things as far as preachers and buildings and how the church is like a building. Some people are wise builders. That was Paul's choice. Some of the people are in the um, let's rip it down category. And as we get down to verses 20 and 21, this is towards the end of the third chapter. He says, and again, the Lord knoweth the reasonings of the wise that they are vain. Wherefore, let no one glory in men, for all things are yours. Paul's been quoting the Old Testament at times, and here is another example of him going back and pulling from the first part of the Bible. In this case, he's going back to the Psalms. He's going back to Psalm 94 and verse 11. That verse, if you were to turn back to it, talks about those who mock God. If someone mocks God, do you think they fare well or they don't fare so well? That is not a wise choice. You're not going to fare well if you mock God. There were some people who, in that day and time, thought that they could rebel against God, they could resist his will, perhaps make fun of him, mock him, and that all would be well. Do we see anything similar to that in our day and time where people feel like they can mock God or do mock God? Yeah. Could we cite some illustrations or examples? How do people in modern times mock God? Same-sex marriage. All right, I think that's, that has to be. And when you look at the Bible, the Bible says he made the male and female. I mean, that's one of the most fundamental truths that you can get. Uh, he established the home. And when you come along and say that the home can be, um, you know, not just dysfunctional, but you say it can be dangerous, and you say that a home between two people of the same sex is better than a home which is uh, made up of a male and female, the other thing uh, that would be tied in with that would be all the trans stuff. You really mock God when you say that there would be, uh, sex is always going to be male or female, but you can have a gender other than female or male. And there's just no end to that. I don't know if you ever uh, have seen some of the updates, but it's no longer just LGBTQ. I mean, it's, you know, I, the last I knew, there were at least 400 different designations. And I'm not sure that, the, that uh, there's ever going to be any real limit to that because people are always going to add to that kind of thing. So uh, it's different. But that's one of the things that has, has come along. Um, I will give you this as far as a little bonus. I don't know that this will ever be turned into a sermon. This might be a good place to slip it in. There are some Christians who are trying to work through the trans thing as far as maybe offering some kind of biblical response to it. And some good things are being written. But here's one thing I think that's it's easy to file away. File away. If you have someone who says, I'm, I'm a male and I'm transitioning to become a female, or I'm a female and I am transitioning to become a male. Um, let me see if I can kind of put this into a question form, also kind of make it a statement. Uh, if I'll just use myself as an illustration. If, if I, as a male, am going to transition into a, a female, whether... You know, we'll say whatever degree that is that I choose to do that. What am I saying? I don't know that the question is real clear. But as a male, I'm trying to transition into a female. What am I saying? Uh, Mom and then Steve. God made a mistake. Well, possibly. That's not really the, the direction that I want to go, but that was a good shot. Steve? Very okay. All right. Um, yeah, that's true too, Kitty. Bob? God is perfect. Yeah, that's true too. All right, if you have a gun and, you know, you take it out, you've got your target downrange, um, what are you shooting at? You're shooting at a target. You have an object that you want to achieve, and that hopefully is going to be a bullseye at the end of the target. If you say as a trans person, I'm, I'm transitioning to a man, you're saying that you have a target. If you are a male, your target is to become, to whatever degree, a female. Do you see the value in that thought? Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad I brought it up then. That's good. All right. If I, if my target, if my goal, if the end result is a female, what does that say about females? Can you identify them? A non-male. Yes. Um, but, okay, let me rework this a little bit differently. All right. How can I become a female if there is no criteria to establish what a female is? Oh, yeah. Now, isn't that interesting? So when someone says that they are transitioning or they're in that process, they imply and they are letting you know whether they recognize it or not, and they might deny it. They would say, we can't know what a man is, we can't know what a woman is. But if you can't know, then how can you possibly transition to that or even transition towards that? Got it. Got it. All right. Because, like, you know, after asking, what is a female? Yeah. And 
Yeah. So you can't have it both ways. If you're telling me you're transitioning, you are acknowledging, you are affirming that there uh, would be some criteria. Uh, there is uh, something that will be a standard that you identify by. Uh, so it really gets, gets into a lot of murky waters. But, you know, to make that simple for you, for us, uh, I think that's helpful. Okay, that... Well, your original question was, is how do we mock him? I think we mock him in more ways than just that, though. Sure, we do. Do you want to throw out a couple more? Um, well, marriage. Okay. They don't like it. Celebrities seem to do it all the time. And I've heard people say, oh, you know, poor kids, you know, they should be free to be with whoever they want, how they want. And, and so I think sex has a lot to do with that. Not yeah. just who you're going to have sex with, but that you're not married beforehand. That that is, you know, archaic. Yeah. Well, almost any part of God's word as far as the moral standard that you find, um, all the activity, everybody does it. You know, lying, you know, are you really concerned about lying? Is that that big of a deal? Everybody lies. But they will put that down as, because in schools, they don't teach the Bible, but they will teach like good behaviors. And so they do teach, you know, it's not good to lie, but not because God says so, yeah. but because you want to be this type of person. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to more personal choices like in school you know we've already talked to Ireland why you know we wait till we're married where does it say that why does it say that and and I don't think the school does their solution is to provide them safe ways to have it mm -hmm. yeah so. yeah when you see decisions when you see ideas contrary to what God has said especially if people know better it's mocking, and it's a common issue. Sherman? At a recent event, I don't know if it's the Super Bowl or what, but halftime there, they could dance around like a devil out fist and yeah. being the devil. I, I think that was the Super Bowl, but I can't remember. Yeah. I, I, I had not thought about that. My mind didn't go in that direction, but that is... They are. The devilish stuff that people are doing, and it's not just kids. You can maybe have a little sympathetic sympathy for young people because... Maybe they don't know better, they're too young, but when you have adults out there, influential people running around in satanic costumes, uh, there was one lady the other day, did you see the quote? She was, I think, an Arizona board member. She was into kind of the, the devilish stuff, and she says, oh yeah, you know, we throw in some hot wings and we're good. Uh, it was kind of a cute one-liner if you just wanted to be funny, but there is a lot of Satanism uh, and the occult, and it, you know, you are just going, you know, God said in the Old Testament, for example, the witches put him to death. So he took that stuff very, very seriously. But you're right, that is a supreme example, and it's being elevated in a lot of different ways. Dolores? Um, I think we also have a tendency in society to mark God by setting up prophets. I know a woman who is so into the prophets, she prided herself on saying, I don't even watch TV anymore. You know what does she do? <laughs> Follows prophets on the internet who, you know, claim to have all authority and all power mm -hmm. and all wisdom and knowledge and um, <coughs> they can't possibly. Yeah. Know, but so many people without knowing it are mocking God by buying into that. Yeah. Uh, and that's another, as you look at the Old Testament, another sinful act. I didn't want to say a crime, but another um, act of wickedness that God said that merits the death penalty. That stuff. Uh, it's just so in the face with God that God says you forfeit your right to live, at least under the Old Testament. So yes, that it? Okay, as far as going back to the 94th Psalm, especially there, verse 11, God says all these wise thoughts, all these um, great ideas, quote-unquote, that people have, they're actually going to be vain. And you see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 20. And again, the Lord knoweth the reasonings of the wise. All the stuff that we were just talking about, people think, well, this is going to be equity, and this is going to be fun, and this is going to be this, 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 and this. God says all of that stuff is vain. It is not wise. It is presumptuousness on the part of people, and it all comes to naught at one point or another. We see that sometimes in society. People will do some things, they'll make some choices, they'll go down a certain road, and then eventually it starts to wear off a little bit or they find that that's not a good thing um, and the wheels sort of come off at, at one point or another. And that's what the Old Testament promised. Paul and um, others made that same point in the New. The information forms the conclusion for what we have in verse 21. Paul says, uh, no one is to glory in men. 
Now, if you look at that in light of the book, I think you can see the connection. You remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what do we have? Do we have any glorying or boasting in men? Who's my man? Who's my favorite preacher? I believe in Paul. I believe in... All right, Apollos is my guy. I am somebody who favors Peter. I am of the Jesus party, all of those things. Well, Paul's still dealing with that because this was a real issue. He says, let no one glory in men, still thinking about those preachers or teachers back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we had somebody make a comment just a minute ago about celebrities. I think that was Sherman. When you look at the Corinthian congregation, it was like the preachers were celebrities. This is my guy. This is my favorite preacher. This is the teacher that we should be listening to. And Paul says, do not do that. That is the wrong thing. And he says in verse 21b, you can see the rebuke. Wherefore, let no one glory in men for what? All things are yours. Here is a good example of taking a verse or taking part of a verse and divorcing it from the context. If I just tell you as a Christian, all things are yours, what's that sound like? Hey, you can name it and claim it. You know, from that county and that country, everything belongs to you. Well, people should have enough, you know, good sense to realize that's not literally true. So you have to say, all right, well, what's going on? All things are yours. What did he say just before that? All things are yours. Who was he talking about? Don't glory in who? Don't glory in men. And those men go back to where? First Corinthians chapter... First Corinthians chapter 1, where I'm a Paul, I'm a Cephas, I'm a Christ. He says, for all things are yours. We might want to substitute what word for things to better see the point. For all people are yours. All people in the sense of who? Paul, Cephas, Christ. All of these people are designed, are designed to help the entire congregation. So it is one more way of saying you guys are really off track. I think here you have a reference to one of the ancient philosophies, Stoicism. You can kind of get that from the um, first part of verse 20. He's talking about the Lord knoweth the reasonings of the wise, the Stoics. They, they had different wisdom ideas, and they said you can use our wisdom to get all things. Paul says, look, you've got Christ. You've got that spiritual wisdom. You've got that insight from his word, and you've got these helpers that we've been talking about. So get your head straight and think correctly and things are going to get better. If you don't do that, things are not going to improve. 1 Corinthians 3, 22 and 23, anything that you want to add or ask before we go down there? Don? Would you consider uh, the Jewish people to be mocking God? Well, that could be taken in a lot of different ways. Before I answer the question, do you want to add anything to it, or is that just kind of a general question? Okay, well, let's just start there and think through that. Would you say that in the Old Testament, the Jews mocked God? Yeah, I mean, what happens when you bow down to the golden calf you made? You brought me out of Egypt. Are you kidding me? How foolish is that? How could anybody reason that way? And if you're the God of all who brought them out and they're falling down, they prostrate themselves before a golden calf? Have you mocked God? If I were God, I'd be thinking that's exactly what you did. Some did, some didn't. That's right. You do, you do have some people who did not do that, but several did. When you start looking at some other things, um, you know, let's just take a look at Psalm 44 offhand. Psalm 44. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us. What work thou didst in their days in the days of old. Thou didst drive out the nations with thy hand, but them thou didst plant. Thou didst afflict the peoples, but them thou didst spread abroad. For they get not the land in possession by their own sword, neither by their own arm save them. But thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy countenance. Because thou wast favorable unto them, thou art my God, my king. Command deliverance for Jacob through thee will we push down our adversaries. Um, and then I just want to skip down to verse 6. For I will not trust in my bow, neither shall my sword save me, but thou hast saved me from my adversaries. And anything else that we want from there? Uh, 
I think that's where I really want to focus. In 6, 4, I will not trust in my bow, not trust in my weapons, neither shall my sword save me. If you were God, and here are people who say, we're going to go out there and we're, we're going to overcome this people by our, uh, you think about Gideon and the people that he had with him, we're going to overcome the people with their military might, and we're going to come, overcome people with our great strength, all of those kinds of things, and we're victorious. How do you think God sees that? It is a way of mocking God. You know, God, we didn't trust you or didn't think you could deliver us, but we saved the day, not you saved the day. And uh, that was a problem, as the psalmist recognizes that. There were some people who trusted in themselves. They trusted in their resources. You have throughout the Old Testament, the prophets dealt with it before the prophets came along. Other people, uh, you know, Moses spoke about it. Uh, we've got it in the book of Judges. People thought that they could extricate themselves from bad circumstances and that may not be how we typically think about mocking God, but that is. You know, you're kind of elevating your, your great works, and God says, you have forgotten me, and it's bad news. So, Don, circling back to your question, um, yes, the Jews did mock God in a lot of different ways. Now, they might not have said, God, you're powerless, um, but there are a number of different paths to mocking God, and they all come out to the same place. Okay. The Old Testament from the standpoint of mocking God, we know that occasionally they did that. I'm talking about today. They believe in God, but they don't believe in Jesus Christ. Yeah. So if they don't believe in Jesus Christ and they, and they say that, aren't they mocking God? Well, let's give you a biblical answer. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6, Wherefore, leaving the doctrine of the first principles of Christ, let us press on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, and of a faith toward God, the teaching of baptisms, and the laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. For as touching those who were once enlightened, and tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then fall away. What's this in verse 6? It is... Impossible to do what? To bring them back, to renew them under repentance. Here were some people who had learned about Christ, so they were not Jews in the sense that you're describing them, but they had learned about Christ, they had become Christians, and they decide to go back. What does the Hebrew writer say? You crucified the Son of God afresh. If you reject Jesus, you're saying, we need somebody else to come and die for us. He's not working out. He's not going to be able to meet our need. Now, the point that was made just a couple minutes ago that when we mock God, there are different ways to do that, or we mock someone. But when you look at God and essentially say, hey, this Jesus that you sent, he's just not going to cut it for my sin. Would you say that you're mocking God? I don't know of any other word. I mean, you're, you're poking him in both eyes, so to speak. There's really not much worse than, than you can say than that. So the Jews mocked him in ignorance, I think that's largely true. The Bible does talk about ignorance early in Acts as far as crucifying Jesus. Um, but when you know and you become a Christian like these Jews did and then you decide to go back and start hunting somebody else for a savior, uh, you are definitely on a very bad path. And the Hebrew writer says, you, you, you just can't do that. Excuse me, it's not going to work. Back to you. In the Christian world today, That's true. I mean, if God has said, do it this way, and God has said, you do it this way, or not accept you, and people say, well, sure, he'll accept us. I mean, if you, you, you tell me something that you seriously believe, and I treat you in a way where I, I don't respect that, I mock you, I don't respect you, I disrespect you, um, there are a lot of different ways to describe that, but ultimately, um, I'm showing complete contempt for you. No, they don't. Um, and that is a problem. I think you see that in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, just think about that image for just a little bit. At the end of time, Jesus says a lot of people are going to come and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things? And there's no lengthy discussion there. 
you know, there's no back and forth. Jesus says, just start, depart from me. That gives you a pretty good picture of how he sees that. If you're not willing to do it in the way that I described, you're on the other side of the fence. Chris? Well, yeah, a lot of people, I think, just don't realize who God is. And he's not somebody that you do that kind of stuff with or to. Sure. Yeah, but sadly, more and more people are speaking out against God. Um, there's a local Facebook group I belong to that someone mentioned about God praying and doing different things. I couldn't believe how many people came on there and said something about there is no God. Atheism, agnosticism, there are a lot of isms, but they all come out of the same place as we're talking about with God. They mock God, either knowingly or unknowingly, but the end result is the same every single time, and it's not good. But you're right, there is a growing um, interest in that kind of thing, and it's, it's easy to find. Okay, let's pick up with verses 22 and 23. Now you can begin to see the people that we talked about from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, what's he say at the end of verse 22? All are yours. So if you read just a little bit more, you would again see that when he says all things are yours, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 21, the very next verse or two helps us understand that he's not talking about every single thing in the world. He's not talking about all the possessions there are, but he's talking about people, in this case, spiritual pe uh, teachers. And then he says in this uh, latter part, verse 23, and ye are Christ, and Christ is God's. We'll get to that in just a little bit. Paul, as he thinks about the access the Corinthians had to spiritual teachers, he pictures that as a form of wealth. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I've had some, at times, rotten teachers. But I've also had some other teachers who have been really good. Anybody ever have any very helpful teachers? And as you look back, you think they have helped me so much through life. Maybe it was a teacher on a job. Maybe it was someone who was a teacher in school. Maybe it was someone who was a religious teacher. But the Corinthians, as you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, they were saying that I've got a tie to this guy. Well, okay, that's fine. But if you're just learning from this guy and you've got four or five other teachers, are you shorting yourself? I mean, Peter might have been the best teacher for certain things. But do you think that Paul probably had some things that we're good to say too? Or Paulus? You can learn some things from all kinds of people. If you limit yourself to just one teacher sometimes, uh, you, you still may get what you need and maybe you get even a little bit more than you need. But Paul is making the point that all these teachers that he lists in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 22, plus all the teachers that we have back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says these teachers, and it's not overly literal, but he says these teachers belong to you. The whole bunch belongs to the congregation. Now, if that's true, then what does that say about the Corinthians and their desire to grab one and latch onto him and, and form a group with this one? Good or bad? It was bad. It was wrong. This is one more way to establish that. Then we have a little more information as we look at 1 Corinthians 3.22, which may seem a little more complex. After he lists the names, he talks about the world, he talks about life, he talks about death, things present, or things to come. And he says, all these things are yours. Now this is sort of like what you find in the Old Testament. Someone will say something, and um, let's just use an illustration, I guess. Uh, can you think of a word, and you could have about four or five synonyms for it? You could describe it. Let's use car. All right, somebody says, I've got my car. What would be a synonym for car? Vehicle. All right, vehicle? Automobile. Automobile? Wheels. Wheel, very good. Wheels? Ride. There you go, five. Eight. All right, there we go. So we've got at least six, and we could probably go up to maybe 10 or 12. So uh, we do that sometimes, and that can be effective for a speaker or a writer. You're trying to change things up. Or it might be that you want to emphasize something. So when you start looking at world, life, death, things present, things to come, uh, you're, you're talking about the same thing, but he's just using different descriptions to emphasize the point. Uh, let's talk about life and death for just a little bit. He says these things are to benefit you. All things are yours. 
What do you think he has in mind when he talks about this benefit of life and death? What's the benefit there? We can start with life. From a Christian perspective, life is either this or that. What are the two options? Life means either life in the sense of... Well, okay. Salvation. All right, spiritual life, salvation, or life in the other sense, would be, which would be what kind of life? There is also... Or there's physical life, physical life, spiritual life. Yeah. When you look at what he's talking about here, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and then he talks about life. Would you think that that life, and there, there could be some truth as far as both sides to it, but would that life seem to be more in the spiritual category or more in the physical category? What kind of life could Paul and Cephas give? All right, it's going to be an emphasis on the spiritual, and that's what you have. All right, if you are a Christian and you are a faithful Christian, you have spiritual life. That benefits you as you go through your time on earth, and it's also going to benefit you in eternity. What about, though, for the person who is not a Christian? They get physical life, at least for a period of time, but what about their spiritual life? Yeah. All right, there is death because of sin. There is that formative period where people are in a right relationship with God. Young children, we don't know exactly when that cuts off. Um, but people do become accountable in the judicial system. People also become accountable in the spiritual realm. And when they are affected by sin, then they suffer that, that loss of that relationship with God. And that needs to be restored through Christianity. Unsaved people, when they die, they are not in a right relationship with God and they do not have life. Uh, it's been said, and I uh, think that some people can see this as being unkind and when the point's made, it's not meant to be unkind. Um, but if you, you think about life from the perspective of a non-Christian, you have physical life, you live for a number of years, and then if you die in sin, ultimately if you look back at that life, what's true of it? What do they get? There's nothing. The life in, in virtually every respect was race, wasted. You have, for example, the man in Luke chapter 16, he was told to remember, so he was able to carry with him some memories of this life, but people get caught up into a uh, cycle of life where maybe they're looking for happiness or they're looking for whatever this world may offer and they don't have life in the true sense. Let's also think about the other part of that and that would be death. When you think about death in the context, what comes to mind? If the life is spiritual, then we would think that when we're dealing with death, chances are the emphasis there is also going to be spiritual. It's also true physically. If we look at the physical aspect of it, is death useful for the Christian? Yeah. I mean, unless Jesus comes back, if, if you want to go to a better place, what step do you have to step on? What button do you have to push? Jesus is your kicker. <laughs> he is. He is, but there's that little door called death, right? You know, you've got to go through the door. You've got to push that button. And that terrifies a lot of people, especially if they are not a Christian. But when you look at death from a Christian perspective, um, maybe the word glorious is not a good word, um, but I mean, that is, that's the doorway. That is the, the ticket, if you will, to eternal life. That is the way that we leave behind the things of this life. The Hebrew writer talked about in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15, Jesus taking away the fear, the concern about death. Paul in Philippians chapter 1, 23 and 24 talked about how much better it would be to leave this life and to be with Christ. There was one uh, famous preacher that talked about how he looked forward to the afterlife. He just didn't want to take the path that, that uh, uh, is necessary to get there. But when you look at what Jesus described in Luke chapter 16, um, how is the death of the righteous described as far as what happened to Lazarus? Who showed up to help him out? Angels. All right, angels came and transported him. I don't know exactly what that involves. Um, you know, I've wondered about that at different times. They carried him. What's inside of us that can be carried? Or is that just a picture to help us understand things a little bit better? I don't know. Uh, but I do think that we can make a couple points about that. If angels take the righteous to the Hadean realm, the pleasant side of that, you think you're ever going to get lost? Do you think you're ever going to get lost? No. no. Do you think you're going to have an unpleasant trip? No. Do you think you're going to be scared? No. I mean, when we think about what is described in Luke chapter 16, we're saying there's really nothing to be scared of. 
I think most people would probably prefer to die in their sleep. They don't want to be involved in uh, any kind of lingering illness. They don't want to be involved in a dangerous auto accident where they'll have to, you know, go to the hospital and have surgery and later uh, pass away from that. I mean, we want an easy way out of this life. Sometimes that works, sometimes not. But when it comes to death, um, you have here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that being pictured in a favorable way. And Luke chapter 16 helps us understand that. Anything that you wanted to ask before we make a couple of thoughts here? And Romans 14, 8 goes very well with this. Yeah. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord. Yeah. It's like going to the refrigerator. I can have this today or I can have this today. And it really doesn't matter. I like both. They're both equally good. And that's true. Whether we live or die, if we are a faithful Christian, we're in good shape. Okay, a couple other things here. At the end of verse 22, you see that Paul is using different wording, but even though he's using different wording, it comes out to the same place. He's talking about the same thing just as we did with the car illustration. He says there are things that are present. Would you say that the word present would be synonymous with life or death? Life. And then he talks about, as you look at this, um, from the other perspective, uh, let's go back and get that. Yeah, I just want to make sure. Uh, things to come, that would be parallel to life or death. That would be parallel to the other part of that, and that would be death. You have, when Paul talks about the word present, that's the same word that's used over in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8 and verse 38. Paul sometimes is a writer. He uses extremes to make his point. Jesus certainly used that type of teaching, and we do too sometimes. We'll go from this extreme to this extreme to help make a point. Um, so when you get to the final verse, um, in this chapter, it introduces a new thought. Paul had just talked about all things belonging to Christians, but then he says, wait a minute. If all things belong to Christians, if that would be taken literally, then ultimately that would mean what or who belongs to Christians? Who? Christ. Well, could that be true, that Christ belongs to Christians? He's our Savior. But yeah, that's true. But when you think about... For example, this is not true, but we're going to make it true. This Kleenex box belongs to me. What does that suggest about my relationship to the Kleenex box? You're the owner. Yeah, I'm the owner. So if you look at that, Christ, yes, and that is the point. So Paul makes that point that uh, Jesus is not going to be in the category of all things belong to you. Uh, we can look at this in a couple of different ways. I'm going to give you the simple version. All believers belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. And all believers belong to God. So it's kind of a hierarchy here that he's talking about. And we're going to see a little bit more of that um, later in the letter. That's going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. So Christ doesn't belong to us in the sense that we're talking about we belong to him. Anything you want to add or ask on that point? Okay, let's say a little bit more. In the next chapter, and we're now ready for the chapter break, remember that Paul has been criticizing the Corinthians for exalting preachers. He's also talked about the different factions, and he's going to continue to deal with the subject. I mean, he just keeps on it and on it and on it for a while in this letter, and we're going to see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. One of the things that he's going to add would be some information about faithfulness. As we prepare to exit 1 Corinthians 3, once again, anything that you want to add or ask? All right, let's slip into 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll start with the first, first verse. Paul says, let a man so account of us. That would be people like preachers. Let them reckon us, reckon uh, as of us, ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You can see that Paul is describing himself by what wording? Well, there's that. Yeah, he says, let a man so account of us. That would include Paul. So he has, once again, preachers in mind. He says, first century preachers, Dolores, this is, I think, where you were headed, uh, let people regard us as servants. That would be a great translation. Some other versions would say ministers, but of the two, to really get the flavor of the thought, I would say servant. When you look at that word, which is translated minister or servant, it is found 19 times in the New Testament. If you were to go back and look at when classical Greek was common, they would use that word to describe the servants or the ministers that doctors had. If you go to a doctor's office, you see that the doctor has some assistants sometimes. What do the assistants do in a doctor's office? 
All right. Uh, maybe somebody comes in. Uh, it's not a registered nurse, but maybe an LPN. She will or he will take your temperature, take the blood pressure. Anything else as far as somebody who's an attendant in the doctor's office? Check your weight. All right. Same person. Maybe someone else will check the weight. Ask all kinds of questions. Yeah. They may want to go through some history, check out meds, or even when you're calling. There may be somebody there at the desk that's inputting information in a computer. You have the person perhaps um, answering the phone call. All of those things are important, right? right? Now for us, I mean, we might be concentrated on the doctor, concentrating on the doctor, the physician, thinking, well, that's the person I really need to see. Uh, but that physician relies on those other people, and we do too. We're not going to get in without an appointment. We're uh, probably not going to get proper treatment with all, without all that background information. So uh, you have this word used in classical Greek to now describe preachers, evangelists, teachers. You find that this word was also used outside the New Testament to describe the military. Um, it may not be so popular today, but in ancient times there were people, if you were in the military, you had people to carry your stuff. If you, anybody ever golf? Yeah. All right. Uh, anybody ever have a caddy? <coughs> okay, I didn't suspect that we would have that in here, but never hurts to ask. But we all know what a golfer's caddy is, right? You know, you got the professional out there. Tiger Woods is probably not going to be carrying his, his clubs. He's got somebody else over there that's going to be carrying the clubs. Somebody's going to hand him, you know, either a club that the caddy thinks is necessary or the one that the golfer asks for. So this word, which is translated minister, it describes a subordinate who has some power, some authority. Uh, the caddy may be the one who's at least trying to suggest which club to use, or the person in the medical office, they have the authority to say, we can get you in on this day at this time, or um, maybe we can ask the doctor about this, those kinds of things. And we've got this word being used, as I said, 19 times in the New Testament. Sometimes it describes an officer. It can describe a servant, a minister, a synagogue attendant. It's even used to describe John Mark back in Acts chapter 13 and verse 5. Here, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 1 to say, I, Paul am a servant, am a minister, am a helper to who? Right. Jesus Christ. So that's Paul's picture of himself to the Corinthians. You can also find that this word was used as, as far as on ships, the under rowers. With the Roman ships, you would have people who would be down below in the uh, huge Roman galleys, and they would be rowing the ships. So Paul says, look, I'm not the captain of the ship. I'm like this under rower, and um, you know we're all in this together, so to speak. So if we are a servant, then you need to look upon us as such versus the leader of some kind of party. Having said all that, can you see a practical point as far as application in that? Can we see what? Can you see from all that a practical point of application? Paul's talking about the preachers. And he says we are servants like in the military. We're servants like in the doctor's office. We're servants as far as like the people in those galley ships. You know, we're down there, you know, we're doing their own. What's the practical point from that for us, Dolores? It may not be where you're going with it, but in days past, several years ago, had some friends who, instead of, I mean, respect your elders, yes, but do not put them on podium like this particular couple of friends did and decide that no matter what the elder said, it was biblical truth. It was from God. And even Paul and Apollos would not have to do that. You know, it, it's, mm -hmm. you have to check your sources and remember that they're servants and human too. Yeah, if you were looking at this from a medical perspective, you would give the doctor some credibility just because of, you know, experience, training, those kinds of things. But we also recognize that a doctor's word, you know, may not be the final word. It may not be correct. A lot of people have failed to check it, and they have suffered or they have died uh, because they did not do due diligence. And that is also true in the spiritual realm. Um, a good doctor should be willing to have an opinion checked. Some act like they're God, and it's this is, you know, my word and the final word, and if you don't like me, then I'm done with you as far as a patient. In the spiritual realm, uh, anybody who is involved with preaching and teaching should always be uh, welcoming in that regard to have their information checked. You know, they could be wrong and they don't know it. Or they might make a slip and hopefully they would appreciate that information being corrected. Uh, building on that just a little bit more, in the religious world, we have what's commonly uh, referred to as a clergy lady system. What is that? The clergy lady system. Preacher's helper. 
Well, okay, that would that would be a pretty good way to describe it. Hmm? Yes, when you think about the, the people who are the clergy, they're the people who are kind of out there on Mount Olympus, so to speak, to go back and talk about what Dolores was saying. You know, I'm the pastor, I am the lead guy, or in today's world, I'm the lead woman. And, um, you know, everybody does and says and thinks what I do, say, and think. And if you are a member of the quote-unquote laity, then who or what are you? Yes, you're someone who needs to, you know, sit in the pew. You might be able to help a little bit. You know, you might be able to, you know, do some of the medical stuff if we were using that analogy, or you might be able to carry some things. But I am the chief Indian, so to speak. And when I speak, everybody bows. Now, if you've never been to a religious group like that, a lot of them exist. In fact, I don't know if you can say the majority are in that category, but that would be my thinking that the majority would fall into that category. Take that typical set up in the world and compare it with what we have in the opening words, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul said, I'm the chief Indian or I'm somebody else? I am a servant. I am someone who is down there on the, the, the bottom of the boat with the other rowers. I'm the one who's like the medical attendant. I'm the one who is like the uh, soldier carrying stuff for somebody who has a higher rank. That is the picture of someone who serves as a preacher, as a teacher, and we might even say as an elder, uh, though elders are not really under consideration in First Corinthians chapter 4, but that is kind of the um, general gist as far as the picture that we get. You may remember back in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 8 where Jesus condemned the use of the word father. In Matthew 23 and verse 8, he says, you are all, remember that key word? Brethren, remember that? You might be an apostle, and you have seen me and done some other things, but he says, you are all brethren. So you stay off the Mount Olympus cloud. Anything that you want to add or ask along those lines? Don? Uh, I have talked to some elders in other congregations, and sometimes you run into an elder that is what you're talking about. My word is the way it goes. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. Well, I would say that was not only unfortunate, it was wrong. Um, the Bible does deal with that, not so much in 1 Corinthians 4. In principle, you can see it here, but Peter specifically talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting with verse 1 and going down through about verse 2, he says, the elders, so we know who he's talking about. The elders, therefore, among you, that helps identify him a little bit more, he says, I exhort, who am a fellow elder, so preacher, uh, Paul, uh, Peter was a preacher as well as an elder, and uh, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, who am also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. He says, tend or care for the flock which is among you, exercising the oversight, not of constraint, don't be forced into it, but he says, but willingly, and then he says, according to the will of God. And, uh, you know, um, you get in here as far as lording it over the flock, and he says, don't do that. Brian? Sure. Yeah, there would be another one. Uh, he was casting people out of the church. We don't know exactly who or what he was. He could have been a preacher. He could have been an elder. He could have been both. He may have been neither. Um, but he, he was someone who uh, had some really strong, some really firm ideas. And there's enough there that we can glean from the letter. I mean, John comes down on him in a very hard way. He says, to make a long story short, uh, you either get that fixed up or I'm going to take care of it when I come. And you're not going to like it very much. So there are people uh, who do behave in that kind of way, but for the people who do behave in that kind of way, God is not pleased. We can see this in a lot of different ways. We could give, you know, just stand here and use the rest of the time as far as illustrations. But parents have authority. And they, they should use that authority well. Can parents abuse their authority? Sure. Yes. 
can they lord it over the child? I mean, they can make life miserable for the child. Um, police officers, once again, if we're going to look at this from an, an adult perspective, uh, they certainly have authority. Can they misuse the authority? I mean, anybody see the story that broke today? There was, um, oh, it was a different story. Um, he wasn't a police officer. I was thinking of a different one. But um, who was he, a cop? There have been so many messed up things lately, it's tough to keep them. Uh, but this was a guy who took, he lured a 15-year-old girl who had been, I'm thinking it was a cop, a rape, a rape victim, and then he abused her. I mean, it was just, uh, just head, head shaking. Um, but that was a particular case where he used his authority in a really, really bad way, and some police have done that. And if you're ever stopped, you know, um, cops can kind of run the full gamut. You can have some that use their authority in an appropriate way, and then, and then others who have just really gone way over the line. So it is a problem sometimes in the church. Anybody else? Okay, let's go back and see where we left off. Uh, we've also got, as Paul talks about this situation and the problem, he uses the word account, and that is a present tense verb. That implies that the information applies to all peoples at all times, all places, and that certainly is true of preachers. When someone has that role, or we could use another role, uh, that needs to be dealt with as far as whatever authority is there in the right way. People need to remember that they are a servant. Uh, applied to the Corinthians, if that's true, Paul, the other preachers, if they were servants of Christ, then what about being the head of some faction? What about being the head of some party? Would that have been right or wrong? If they were a servant of God. Hey, come and be part of my party. Come and be part of my group. I'm going to lead this faction. Did they have the authority to do that? No. So that really would have been, and we'd have no evidence that they wanted to do that, but there were some people who sort of forced them into that, that position. And Paul says, do not do that. A related point, you'll find sometimes people will ask or demand to be called reverend. I'm the reverend. No, you're not. You may think that, and you may want people to call you that, but you are not reverend. Uh, lots of other titles could possibly be given, but all of that stuff is inconsistent with what we have here. Paul, as he uses this word, which is translated account, it means one should regard us. One should regard us as servants of Christ. Okay, anything else? All right, let's talk about the word steward for just a little bit. This is another thing that we're going to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, a steward giving you a formal definition here. He says it's a kind of chief slave who superintended the household and even the whole property of his master. You might use the word caretaker to describe what Paul is referring to when he talks about stewardship. A little bit more as far as a quote, stewardship over the goods and house of the master by a devoted servant was part of ancient culture. You see that very early in the book of Genesis. You go back to Genesis chapter 15, starting with verse 2 in Genesis 43, Genesis 44, 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 1. Did Jesus ever use the image of stewardship to describe how his people are to behave? He did. Anybody remember one of those illustrations? The kingdom, is, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who goes into a far country. And what happens while he's gone? He gives... All right. Five talents to you, three talents to you, one talent to you. And what were the talent receivers supposed to do? Yeah, use it. You, you trade, you use this money, and one day I'm going to come back. And when I come back, what am I going to do? You're going to give an accounting. You're going to give a reckoning for your stewardship. We're going to see how you did. Now, some people have the ability to be like the five-talent man. I mean, they can just bang, 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 bang. There are some other people who, for whatever reason, maybe they become a Christian late in life. There could be a lot of different reasons. They um, may be regarded as one-talent people, but they can be just as faithful with that one talent as someone who has five talents. Now, when you start looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, let's think about specifically the emphasis as far as the steward. Paul, and he'll talk about this in a little more detail in a later class, but he's not talking about stewardship here in terms of money, is he? He's talking about managing the mysteries. 
yeah, he's talking about spiritual stewardship. God has made me a preacher. He has made me a teacher, not to become a leader of the group, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but to take the message of Christ. And I want to do that in the best way that I can. I want to be as effective as possible. Don't want to be involved in all the Corinthian silly stuff. So you need to get your thinking straight, and I need to be able to continue to do what I need to do. Being an unfaithful steward is wrong. The book of Ezekiel talks about this in maybe some of the clearest language that we had. God tells Ezekiel, you're a watchman. Your job is to be a warning uh, system, so to speak. And he told the prophet, if you don't let people know, then what am I going to do to you? I'm going to require your blood. Your neck is going to be on the chopping block. So when you look at God and Christians, there is that implied warning. You make sure to the best of your ability that you let people know um, about spiritual things, that you're a Christian, and that you want other people to follow that same path. We cannot control other people, but certainly we can influence to the best ability that we have. Anything that you want to add or ask? Okay, let's see what else we've got. Uh, let's take a look at Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. We'll run that cross-reference and see where we are. Somebody want to read that for us? Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Volunteer? Brian? He said also to the disciples, There was a certain rich man who had much as steward, and the Savior of the times people will read that and they'll shake their head and think, well, it sounded like God was commending a crook. Well, he's not commending a crook. He is simply saying that here is a man who understood the situation as it existed and he acted in the best possible way. And that's what we need to do. If we are a steward of the mystery of God, the spiritual things, and all of us are, if we become a Christian, our responsibility is to do the best that we have. Sometimes that requires some good creativity uh, and, and sometimes the way forward is going to be very, very clear. But we do want to be good stewards. We sometimes sing a song about stewardship. Here are some of the words, into the hands, into our hands, rather, the gospel is given. Into our hands is given the light. Haste, let us carry God's precious message, guiding the earring back to the right. Uh, we can do that in a lot of different ways. Sometimes we can do that as far as personal conversations. We can do that by maybe handing somebody a book, a tract, a uh, DVD, just a ton of different ways. Maybe it's an invitation, but there are a lot of things that we can do to be the, the best steward that we can possibly be. And Paul has some more information about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2. There he's going to tell us that we must be a faithful steward. Still talking about the mysteries of God. Stewardship is a really important thing. It involves all kinds of different matters, and it's always something to be mindful of.